The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, Glory, this is Dudley with Kerygma Ventures, and good to be back with you again this month. I hope you're enjoying the videos as well as the audios. Many of you have been getting audios for 50 years, <laughs> but uh, we've been enjoying doing the videos as well and getting good response. Hey, I was looking at a couple of things coming up that you ought to consider. The uh, Wild Man, April, what is that? 28th through 30th. This is a fabulous time for men and boys to come and find out what being a man uh, in spirituality really is. Why don't you call right now and call the office or go online and see if there's any place, if there are any places left. This was one of the most fun things you'll ever do in your whole life. Bring somebody with you. It's fabulous. Uh, I don't have time to tell you all the wonderful things we do, like Comanche Pot Shot and the Texas Hog Toss and all that wonderful stuff. The other thing that's coming up in June, the 8th through the 11th, is the Father-Son Rite of Passage. We've been doing that over 25 years. Uh, every boy needs a father to tell him he's a man before he believes he's a man. And every boy deserves to come to something like this. Uh, you have to be 14 or older. Uh, no upper limit. You can be as old as you want, dads and sons. And some of you have heard me tell that our oldest couple so far, the father was 101 and the son was 72. And they did great. And so come to that. Go online. Call the office. Just participate. You'll love it. Also, this month, I want to talk to you about grace. I know that's a surprise to many of you. But several years ago, in the 80s and 90s, I wrote a book called Grace Works. I redid it in the last couple of years. And my dear friend Amy Grant wrote the forward for this, this particular edition. It's a fabulous book on how grace really does work in your life. Some of you have it, but some of you, have it. Some of you don't. And you really, really can't consider yourself uh, well-educated if you haven't read Grace Works. So uh, get that and uh, read it. Don't just get it, but read it and then give it away and get another one to give it away. Somebody came up this past week and said, hey man, I read your book on Grace, Grace Works, and I've listened to some other people and there are several of you, a bunch of you guys out there talking about Grace and and I've been trying to do this and I'm just telling you, Grace is hard. And uh, I chuckled at that statement because I was thinking how ironic it sounds, how different it sounds. Grace is hard. I mean, uh, if you understand the nature of grace, that God has done everything for us that he required of us, and he has uh, anticipated our not only our desires but our needs, and he has made it possible for us to have the same relationship with the Heavenly Father that Jesus has and that's hard. It, it, it seems strange until you start trying to live it out. And then when you start trying to live in grace, you find that you are so accustomed to, to living in religion that it is hard. And so I identified with the question and I thought, hey, let's talk about it. If, if that person thinks it's hard and sometimes I think it's hard, it's a whole lot easier just to revert back the way, then maybe some of you think it's hard. And I did a, a small video on it the other day that we put on uh, social media, and uh, people responded to it really well. 
I'll read you a text that goes along with this discussion. So if you have a Bible or a copy of the scripture in any way, look at Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. Okay, so it talks about the appearance of the grace of God that uh, sets us free from the stuff that causes us to be susceptible to both rebellion and religion. By the way, the uh, subtitle of this book is Rescued from Senseless Rebellion and Lifeless Religion. Those, those seem to be the uh, options that we take. Either break off all the shackles and just be rebellious and do life like you want to do it according to your own appetites, desires, or whatever, or religion trying to, uh, trying to get in control through morality and stuff like that. So what, what does it mean? Why, why is that hard? Okay, here's the premise. Here's what we're dealing with. Grace is hard for us because it is both counterintuitive and countercultural. It's hard to believe that Jesus' finished work has completed everything God requires of us in order for us to relate to him the way we were designed to. It's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive because, you see, we, uh, we are children of Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that story in, in early Genesis where God had created the garden and it was beautiful and they had every tree, every kind of fruit you could imagine there, but God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you, you die. And Adam and Eve were enticed by the serpent to do that, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what's so enticing about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, it's uh, it's enticing because if you eat of that tree, you don't need to depend upon anybody. You know enough to do good things, and you know enough to avoid bad things, and you can actually run your own life. And so you're a self-contained entity. And what, who doesn't want to be that? I mean, that's what all of us strive for, right? It's like, I don't want to need anybody. Well, so Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the fruit of that tree means now that you are, now that you are conscious of good and evil. And you define life in terms of good and evil. Uh, you do good things in order to get good things. And you try to avoid bad things in order to avoid bad things happening to you. So you, uh, your life is about good goodness. It's about morality. It's about trying to find a way to, to show that I'm good. And because when you eat of that tree, you inevitably think in this terms that 
you know, God loves good people more than bad people. In fact, many would say God loves good people and he hates bad people and can't wait to burn them up. So you don't want to be bad. You want to be good. And so you look for ways to be good and, and you develop a religion that that's built around being good. And, and what good things can you do? Well, it's according to what your religion tells you to do. To what does your what does your particular God want you to do? Does He want you to go to church? He wants you to read your read the documents, read the scriptures. He wants you to believe stuff. He wants you to memorize stuff. He wants you to curtail your behavior. Does He want you to uh, you know have a bunch of kids, or does He want you to sacrifice His kids on an altar, or your kids on an altar? What what does what does what does it take to be good in your religion and you know, truthfully, we will take any basic religion and turn it into our own by, by being good. I grew up in a Baptist tradition. Thank God for all the good Baptist folks that love me and educated me and all that kind of stuff. I have nothing bad to say about that. But in my tradition, goodness was defined in, ter a lot, in terms of going to church uh, a lot, being loyal to the church, going to church, not not smoking, not dancing, of course, and not drinking alcoholic beverages and not not having premarital sex and and not and, and witnessing and tithing. I mean those are just some of the stuff. So you can be good if you do those things and if you don't do those things you're being bad and probably God doesn't love bad people. He loves good people, and so I want to be, I want to be good. So, so, so life turns out to be pretty, uh, pretty bound up, because you see, in our heart, even though we may be doing some good things outwardly, inwardly, we're wanting to do bad things. We're wanting to yield to our desires, our basic passions. We're wanting to step outside the boundaries. We're wanting to do those things that look more fun than our morality will let us do. And so, so then we wind up being hypocrites because now we're doing good things on the outside while on the inside we're struggling with, with what's going on there. So, so then we conclude that we can't be honest with people and tell them what, what's really going on. And sometimes we even think we don't need to be honest with God like he doesn't know. So, so if being good is the issue, then how do you be good? Well, you, you can become good by eliminating evil. That's kind of the progression, right? So if, if I'm, if I want to be good, because goodness means that God loves me more, and if God loves me more, he blesses me more. Uh, and and uh, so, okay, how do I get good? I eliminate evil. Uh, I, those things that, are, that are, are not in that list, I avoid those things. Now, the Pharisees did that. Uh, that, was, uh, that was their take on it. And Jesus basically mocked them by, by saying, look, with your kind of religion... If your right eye offends you, cut it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. He could have gone on to say, if your ear, if you're hearing the wrong things, cut it off. 
Basically, what he's saying is you can wind up being a bloody blob of meat on the floor and still be a sinner. You still wouldn't be holy because you cannot eliminate enough behavior to be good. They asked Jesus one time, good master, what, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, why do you call me good? There's only, only one that's good. Goodness, maybe that's not the goal. Maybe God is not trying to make us good. Maybe he's just trying to make us human. What does that mean? Well, that's what he, he created Adam and Eve to be human. He created them with a physical body and with uh, sexual drives and the capacity to enjoy sexual intimacy. He created them with ambition. He, he created them with uh, emotions. He created them with uh, intellect. He created them with the ability to, to rationalize, to reason. He created them with a body, a soul, a spirit. Uh, that, maybe he just wants us to be human. Maybe he just would like to have human beings not trying to be gods, but just content to be humans, worshiping him freely, fully, and working with him creatively. I mean, that's what he had in the garden, right? He had Adam and Eve enjoying him, and working in the garden as his partner and developing the garden. And they seem to be pretty content and fulfilled and satisfied and whatever, and not ashamed. And, and they didn't have a bunch of baggage to carry out because they were humans. Because after they sinned, then they pick up all this baggage. They're hiding behind bushes from God. They're, they get kicked out of the garden of Eden. They're, they're, they don't know what they're here for. And there's all kinds of stuff. And then God in his mercy finally sends another Adam, and this Adam is human. Well, I know he's God, he's the son of God, but he's also son of man. He, he, was, he was as much man as if he were no God at all, and, and of course he was as much God as if he were no man at all, but he lived life the way a human lives life. And how did he live? He didn't live it measuring himself on how good he was. He, he loved to listen to the Father and do what the Father said and partner with the Father and do whatever the Father was doing on the earth. So it was about work. It was about worship. Uh, and so maybe maybe God is just wanting us to, to be human. In fact, I think that's what the gospel is about. I think the gospel is about God restoring us, rescuing his people from all the baggage, the junk that's come upon them because of sin and restoring them to a place of just being human, where as his image bearers, they are enjoying him and, and working with him. And uh, all of the things that he built into him as humans, they appreciate it and use it, their drives, their intellect, their desires, and all of that. And that's what that text that I read a while ago said. The grace of God has appeared instructing you how to deny ungodly desires, but he didn't say that you're to eliminate desires and teaching you to walk as a partner with God, zealous of good works, enjoying doing what God puts you on the earth to do. So intuitively, we think that we need to do something to be good and do something to be for God to love us and, and to get blessings and we're really vulnerable to those who kind of peddle another kind of gospel that says there are certain things if you'll do, God will bless you more and love you more. And if you do these, you know, you can pull these levers, if you will, 
and you can get God to do things. If you do certain good things, then that, that's peddling the gospel and, and it never does really, really work. Another, another byproduct of it is that a lot of people feel like that really good work is stuff done by the ecclesial people, that is church workers and stuff. And that if you, if you really, if God really did love you, he would call you into ministry and let you work in some kind of a church related vocation. And if you're not, then you're kind of second rate and you're, you're supposed to just furnish the, the finances and the prayers and so forth for, for the others. Well, that's not right either. You know, I, I have a friend who was offered a path to be the president of the United States if he would do a certain thing. And, and he said to the man, I've been called to be a, a, an evangelist, a preacher of the gospel. And for me to accept presidency would be a step down. Well, that's true. But you know what? You don't have to be a preacher for that to be true. You can be a mechanic and you can be a technician and you can be a housewife and you can be a uh, you can be a babysitter. You, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You're, if you're doing what God called you to do, it's not a step up to just find a position somewhere. No matter how important people think that position is, because you're you're not being measured on your goodness. You're, you're being you're, you're being blessed by the grace of God, who who has come in your stead in the person of Jesus Christ to give you what Jesus deserves, to give you what his goodness demands. So, so, so that's the first step. Well, what about not only does, is, is grace counterintuitive, it is countercultural. We, we live in a culture that does not promote grace. It doesn't get it. If the individuals that make up culture don't get grace, but they're living out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then the culture is going to accept that, that same thing. So cultures are developed around this idea of uh, morality, uh, of acting right, of, of, uh, of justice. Here's something I see in culture. Culture tries to make a distinction between justice and mercy. You know, that you can't have both. And so they, they see people who are promoting grace and mercy and they go, well, their concept of that is, well, you deserve something bad, but somebody out of uh, a wave of compassion or whatever has, has not given you what you deserved and they're just going to overlook it. It's kind of a, a personality thing, an arbitrary thing that, that God or a judge or whatever has done. And it's like, I, I didn't give you justice. I gave you I gave you mercy. And so we focus on this justice thing, our concept of justice, which is if you're guilty, you got to pay. And we all have this sense of guilt because we, we have all sinned. And so there's a sense in which we, you know, you got to pay. So as we, as we, uh, approach God, it's like, okay, I, I, I need to pay something. And this is the way culture works in every other way. And that is the more you pay, the better stuff you get. So what do I have to pay God to get his forgiveness, to get his acceptance, to get his blessing, to get his anointing, to get his power? What, what, what do I have to pay to get it? 
And sadly, there are a lot of folk, even in church work, who think that though salvation is free, they would say, usefulness or anointing or power or, or whatever, you have to pay for that. You have to pay for it with a lot of sacrifice. You have to pay for it with a lot of prayer. You have to pay for it with a lot of suffering and all that kind of stuff. As if there was something we could do that would gain us some some leverage there with God. And it's the same way with our sin. Like, okay, what will it cost me to, to have my sins forgiven? How, how much humiliation do I have to endure for God to finally say that's enough? How long must it be between my, the commission of my sin and now to, to say, okay, I've paid enough time. I've done my time in the penitentiary of, uh, of God's rejection. And so it's, you know, it's, it's been 20 years since I've done that terrible thing. Is that, is that long enough? Uh, it's been two years. Uh, surely that, that's probably not long enough. Ha- have I, have I self penalized enough that God is willing to accept my self imposed penalties as enough? And will he go, well, he suffered enough. I, I think I'll just show mercy to him. I'm going to let him go. He, he, he doesn't need it. So it's like colleges in the NCAA football, basketball, whatever. Uh, the NCAA finds a college that's been breaking the rules and the college is notified. And so the colleges then go into a self investigation and then they impose penalties on themselves. Okay. This year, next year, we're not going to go to a bowl and we're cutting our scholarships back by two or three, hoping that the NCAA will go, okay, you penalize yourself enough. We won't do any more. Uh, a lot of us, that's why the culture thinks God works too. He, he just doesn't. Let me tell you what grace teaches you. Grace teaches you that justice and mercy are two sides of the same coin. It is God's mercy that he has established justice on the earth. That's why the law says, look, in order to protect you and in order to protect your society, if a man takes out your eye, you only can require his eye in return. You you can't operate on vengeance. You can't go, oh, you took out my eye. I'm taking out both yours. No, he said, justice is an expression of God's heart of mercy of wanting you to survive and wanting a society to survive. That's why eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you'd see that in all the Western things, you know, and they're justifying vengeance with it sometimes. That's that's mercy expressing expressed through justice. But why don't you see the other side? Justice is justice is mercy, and mercy is is justice. Think about this scripture, First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our, our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. You need to understand that grace works like this. God didn't just look down and say, for a few of you, I'm going to overlook it. No. He said, sin has to be paid for. And I love you so much that I am going myself to take the penalty and I will pay for your sin. So God in Jesus Christ comes and becomes sin for us 
so that in him we could have his righteousness. But God carries out justice when Jesus becomes our sin on the cross and he is our substitute and he is the sacrifice that God accepts. Justice has to be done. Every sin has to be paid for with death. And so when we come to Christ and we go, I, I receive you as my savior, as my substitute, as my sacrifice. When we, when we see that and, and we uh, receive him, then we are accepting the justice that he has done in our behalf. Yes, it's mercy, but justice has been done. And, and that's why a Christian doesn't fear judgment. He doesn't fear standing before God. Why? Because justice has already been done for him. I used to fear being brought up at the last day in front of this great crowd of stadium full of people and being judged for my, whatever I've done, all my thoughts and all my deeds and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh no. Look, based on the grace presented to us in the gospel, I can look forward to that day. Because in that day, I will find there are no charges against me. And that, that, that's all because of, of what Christ has done for me. Listen at Romans 8. Listen to this. What, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God that justifies who is it that will condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Of tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? As is written, we're, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure that neither life nor death our principalities, our powers, or things above, things with earth, anything, anywhere in existence can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we need to understand that I'm looking forward to judgment because judgment vindicates what God has done in Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll get to I'll get to to be there with you and look and say, here. Here's what Jesus has forgiven me of. There are no charges. There are no charges. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who, who, who can do it? And nobody, because there are no charges. Because Jesus took the charges and the indictment and the guilt and the sentence and paid for it and, and sets, sets me free. So grace teaches us that in the culture of the kingdom, in the culture where we live with Christ, we don't, we don't live by paying ourselves and we don't live by bargaining with God and we don't live by sacrificing. We, we live in, in the freedom of redemption. Having been redeemed by his blood, we are free. You say, well, it just seems to me that people would take advantage of that. I mean, if that's true, don't you just live a, a passive life? I mean, you can just, 
basically do whatever you want to do. Well, think about this. What do you think would happen if a person who had been his whole life motivated by fear of punishment and fear of rejection, if he had the baggage of guilt and shame and he had been under the bondage of addictions and the drives and desires that he could not control. And, and one day he gets free. He's freed from the taint of sin. He, he doesn't, his conscience is no longer bugging him. And he's, he's no longer afraid of judgment. He, he's no longer shamed uh, because of what he's done and who he is. And he's, he's not fearing death. What kind of life do you think he'd live? Without all those encumbrances, I wonder if he, just being a human, the way God created a human to be, like Adam and Eve in the garden, I wonder if he wouldn't be productive. I wonder if he wouldn't be enjoying God. I wonder if he wouldn't be out in the garden trying to discover what's, what is in this creation and how can I make it how can I make it uh, better? How can I develop it so that all these kids and stuff that I'm having or all these people around can get blessed by it? How can I help life to flourish out here? And instead of worrying about how big the piece of pie is and am I going to get my share and will I survive, he would be thinking of, man, look at all this great resource out here in, in creation and, and the resources I have with my father, if I, if I need something, He's the one that created it all. He, he could he could give more to me. And so, so I, I'm about developing this earth, not escaping this earth or, 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 or turning this earth over to the devil. I, I'm about development and discovery and, and enjoyment. So that person would be enjoying God fully and it would be, he would, he'd be working fruitfully. You wouldn't find that person worried about their job, you know, what am I supposed to do? Well, until you, until you know something else to do, enjoy God and the garden that's right in front of you, you develop it. Your own life, your own thoughts, your own capacities, your own family, your, your, your own territory, your own influences, you know, just tend, tend to that. And the promise of God is if you're faithful in, in the little, God will give you much. If you're faithful in that which somebody else gives you, he'll give you that that's your own. And so, so you're operating without all of that fear and out all of that, I, I work in order to make enough to get by. And I hate my work and, and, and I wish I didn't have to work and I can't wait until Friday. And I'll be glad when they turn the work week back to Thursday and then I can't wait till I retire so I can do nothing because I've always wanted to do nothing. And I hate having to make a living and, and all the pressure and all that kind of stuff. All of that is a result of all the encumbrances that sin brought into our existence. That, that's humans laden down with stuff that God didn't create humans to have. So... We, we don't have to hate our bodies. We don't have to like, oh my goodness, I'll be so glad when 
when I die, because when I die, I'll be free from this body and I can fly away. And uh, this old body that's been my problem, that's been my jailhouse all this long, but that's the seat of all these desires and these desires have got me in trouble. So I, I've got to hate my body. You don't have to hate your body anymore. Your body is part of who you are. God gave it to you. It has drives and desires and the capability of reflecting the, in your countenance the very glory of God. It, it has usefulness where you can be zealous of good works. You can be helping others. You can be worshiping God. You can be developing resources. You don't have to hate your body. You don't have to, to put it down, to resist it, to deny it. All of that is a result of not being free as humans. You, know, you can quit looking forward to going to heaven when you die. And I mean, we, we will get to be with the Lord when we die, but, but you can rejoice in the fact that heaven has come to earth already in Jesus Christ. That's what grace says. We look forward to the blessed hope. We've already, we've already met him. It is, he has already appeared. We look forward to his coming and consummating what he has already, what he's already done. So you are zealous of good works. You were made to reflect the image of God. You were made to reach out and share his love with others. You were made to discover the resources that he's put in creation. And so free from all of the, the, the taint and guilt and stain of sin, you can get about doing that. And guess what? You won't be so conscious of how good you are and how bad you are. You'll be conscious of being loved. You'll be conscious that, that God didn't make you just to be good. He made you so that he could use you to demonstrate who he is. Now think about this. If God is going to use you to demonstrate his true character, and his true character is that he loves defective people, guess what? He may let you see your defectiveness, your defects, and the grace of God love you, show, show that he loves you anyway, so that you can be a demonstration to the folks out there. Because you know what? Everybody you're dealing with is a sinner. Everybody you're dealing with has some problem. They're broken in some way. So God would like to take broken you and the grace of God be so real in your life that they can see the grace of God in you. So it's not like God gets angry with you when you are weak or defective, he, he then uses you to show his glory. Think about, we'll close with this story. Think, think about Peter. Peter thought life was about loyalty and keeping promises and being good, if you will. So he told Jesus, when Jesus told him that, uh, that, that, other, that, that, people were going to, that they were going to deny him, he said, not me. I, I, make, I'm, I promise, I recommit, I'll go to death or prison for you. And Jesus said, Satan has asked for permission to sift you. I've prayed for you. When you have returned, help the brothers. And so you know the story. That very night, Peter denied the Lord in front of a little girl. And he gets out to the seaside and later. And Jesus meets him in Galilee. And he cooks breakfast for him. And he's talking to Peter. So he says to Peter, do, do you love me more than these? You know, you made promises and all that. And, and it's interesting that Jesus does not want to talk about his goodness or his badness or his sin. He doesn't really want to talk about that. 
He wants to talk about love. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Finally, he says, do you, do you even like me, Peter? And Peter goes, you know me. And, and essentially, Jesus says, I love you enough for both of us. Feed my sheep. See, Peter wasn't really ready to be the, the ultimate reflection, image bearer of the grace of God until he himself had been exposed to his, his concept of goodness and his concept of deserving God's blessing his concept of keeping promises. He was still keep trying to keep promises to God, not realizing that it was all about God keeping promises to him. He, all of that had to be exposed in Peter, and he had to understand that Jesus loved him just like he was. That Jesus loved Peter. And when Peter finally saw it, Jesus loves me. I, I'm a mess, and Jesus loves me. Then he was qualified to feed the sheep. And that's what, that's what uh, God wanted to start with. He just, that's why he called Peter. That's why he told him when he first met him, you're, you're Simon, but uh, you will be Peter on, on this, you'll be a rock. That's why he called him to be one of his disciples so he could be a reflection of the glory of God and where he lived. Look, I, I don't know what your history is. I, I, not, not really, but I know this. Your history does not include any deficits or any sins, or any tragedies that's bigger than the grace of God. And God, even today, would like to bring his grace to bear in the middle of where you are so that your life can reflect his glory and you can enjoy him the way he created you to enjoy. Or you could be free to be a true human, loved by God, with, with the capacity to work with God in his plan, in his purpose. So, grace is hard. Yeah, I can see why you'd say that. It's hard because it's contrary to the way our minds really want to think. We think that's too good to be true. It's contrary to the way our culture teaches. So it's counterintuitive, it's countercultural, but it's true. And you have the opportunity today to do something radical. Believe that truth rather than all those other voices that you're hearing in your head. And you'll discover that life, uh, it'll still have some struggles. It'll be full of joy, full of meaning, full of purpose. And you'll even be looking forward to the judgment because there's no charges against you. Well, let me pray. Father, I thank you for the, for, for the goodness of grace. I thank you that uh, you, didn't, you didn't give up on us just because we failed, but that you have taken our failure to use it as an opportunity and as a time to display your own glory. Thank you for every person who heard. I pray that you give ears to hear, that people would hear how good your grace really is. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us. We had fun this time and we'll have fun next time. And I look forward next time. Until then, this is Dudley Hall at Kerygma Ventures. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. 
You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www.kerygmaventures.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.